Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. On Capitol Hill, no House Speaker yet after Congressman Jim Jordan fell short of the votes needed on the first ballot. What's next on the quest for a House Speaker? Hundreds of people killed when a rocket hit a hospital in Gaza. Israel says its intel indicates it was an Islamic Jihad rocket from within Gaza that failed. Over a week has passed since Hamas terrorists took nearly 200 hostages from Israel. With no resolution in sight, family members and world leaders are speaking out. President Biden heading to Israel. What the goals and risks are of his visit to an active war zone and how new developments on the ground are affecting his plans. And at the New York Supreme Court earlier today, former President Trump was in the courtroom for the financial fraud trial. But the witness he came to see said he couldn't make it. House Republicans are yet again forced to vote multiple ballots to elect a House Speaker. The first official floor vote failed to give GOP's nominee Jim Jordan the gavel. NTD's Melina Weiskup has updates from Capitol Hill. Melina, walk us through how the vote turned out today. Well, Tiff, Jim Jordan fell short of about 17 votes that he would have needed to secure the 217 votes needed to secure that gavel. 200 went to Jordan, 212 went to the Democrat leader, Hakeem Jeffries, which could be embarrassing for Republicans considering that the Democrat leader got more than the Republican elected nominee. And that's because there were 20 Republicans who chose to split with the party and vote against Jordan. The majority of those votes went to either former Speaker Kevin McCarthy or Majority Leader Steve Scalise, which is interesting considering the fact that both Scalise and Jordan were both backing uh, Scalise and McCarthy were both backing Jordan with hopes that their supporters would in turn follow them get in line and also back Jordan as well but as of right now it doesn't look like that's working we caught up with one of those members who voted with Scalise that is Congressman Mario Diaz Balart shortly after the vote and he says even on the next ballot he's still sticking with Scalise here's why along with Congressman King Buck Kim Buck who also says he's never going to vote for Jordan. Take a look. Look, the reason we are in the position that we are is because a very small group of Republicans, let's not forget, while we are where we are, um, coordination with the, the more radical elements of the Democrats got together and they got rid of the speaker that had been elected by, uh, by the majority. We had the Republicans got together and we had an election. In that election, Mr. Scalise won. I'm voting for the person who won the election. Who do you want to see take the position? I, I, I think we've got to come together in the conference and I'll support uh, you know, the, the, the candidate that comes out of the conference that can meet certain uh, issues that I care about. One is um, the, the Ukraine funding issue, and, and another uh, is the, uh, the, the acknowledgement that Donald Trump lost the election. And Melita, what's next here? Do folks still think Jim Jordan has a shot to get to 217? Well, Tiff, that really depends on who you ask. Of course, those who are opposing Jordan want to try their best to stick by that position. The vast majority, though, that we've spoken to are optimistic that Jordan could get there eventually. Most notably, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he's still optimistic about it and encouraging people to stick with Jordan no matter how many rounds that it takes. And something I do want to point out here, Tiff, is that Jordan did win a significant number of votes during this first public floor house vote than he had back on Friday when they 
had that internal vote. He won about 35 more votes than he did on Friday. And if it continues in that direction, then it is looking good for Jordan. However, right now he does have a lot of work ahead of him trying to work with those members who voted against him today, hopefully meet with them, find out why they're voting against him, and hopefully change some minds there. So we'll show you how members were feeling leaving the floor about whether or not Jordan still has a shot. I'm expecting another vote to take place, and we still won't have enough, 217, but hopefully we'll get to somewhere between 26 and 210. I know some conversations that uh, uh, Mr. Jordan has been having with some folks who um, did not vote for him, um, seeing if he can move any of those individuals, and then if he can, great. If he can't, then we probably have to move on. You should stay with him. And now at this point, Tiff, the House has adjourned for the evening, giving Jordan more time to try to flip some of those votes. They will return back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to continue with the second ballot. Now the question is, how many ballots are they willing to go with Jordan before they try to put somebody else in the race? Melina, thanks for that update, and we'll certainly be checking in with you again tomorrow. Zooming into the war between Israel and Hamas, a mass casualty event at a Gaza hospital when a rocket hit during the night. Just a warning, some of the following footage may be disturbing for some viewers due to its graphic nature. As of Tuesday, over 4,400 people have been killed in the Israel-Hamas war. The Hamas-controlled health ministry in Gaza said Palestinian deaths stand at nearly 2,800. And Israel said Israeli deaths are at 1,400. Most of those were from the initial Hamas terrorist attack that prompted the war. At that time, Hamas also took at least 199 hostages into Gaza. Israel intensified air raids on southern Gaza as Hamas fired rockets to cities across Israel. Hamas said hundreds were killed at a hospital in Gaza City when an airstrike hit on Tuesday. Israeli officials said their military intelligence shows that the hospital was hit by a failed rocket launch from Gaza. Israel on Tuesday also said it killed the top commander of Hamas's military wing, Ayman Nofal, in an airstrike. Hamas confirmed his death. Nofal is one of the most high-profile Hamas terrorists to be killed so far. He was in charge of Hamas's military activities in the central Gaza Strip. Fears are growing that the war could spread into nearby countries. Iran's top envoy said on Monday that resistance forces were ready to open new fronts with Israel if the conflict in Gaza continued. This came as clashes between Israeli troops and Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran, escalated in recent days along the Lebanese border. It has grown into the most serious confrontation for the two sides in 17 years. Israel said they killed four people who were trying to cross from Lebanon on Tuesday. The Israeli military chief of staff threatened that Israel would retaliate aggressively if Hezbollah were to join the war. If Hezbollah makes the mistake of attacking, destroy, destroy, destroy. We don't neglect our values. We act according to the values, but we adapt them to the cruelty and madness that the enemy has introduced into this campaign. The Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt remains closed, with trucks carrying humanitarian aid waiting to go into Gaza. The Israeli government agreed to establish what they call safe zones in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, where civilians could receive humanitarian aid, but with one condition. 
Aid for the people who we had called on to head south is legitimate, but if this aid does not reach the civilians and instead reaches the murderers, this cannot be. In a series of posts on X, the Israeli military explained that Hamas has been stealing fuel and medical equipment from the United Nations facilities in Gaza. The fuel was meant to purify water for citizens. This was also mentioned in posts by the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees that were later taken down. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The Israeli hostage crisis enters its second week and there are no signs of a resolution. Civilians taken by Hamas remain in captivity. Families voice their anguish, hoping for a breakthrough. NTD's Jason Perry has the update and just a warning that some of the following footage is graphic and could be disturbing to some viewers. The war between Israel and Hamas started after the terrorist group conducted a surprise attack on Israeli civilians attending a music festival near the Gaza border. They were fish in a barrel sitting in this uh, bomb shelter. This Israeli mother described, according to witnesses, what happened when her son and other music festival attendees tried to take cover to avoid being killed by Hamas terrorists just days after it happened. Terrorists came to the door. They were throwing grenades in and shooting machine guns. And we know that Hirsch's arm from the elbow down was um, severed, was blown off, and that he tied a tourniquet around with his shirt and Hamas came in after the gunfire settled down and said anyone who can walk stand up and walk out. She said her son walked out with five other people and they were put in a pickup truck and driven away by Hamas. Police told her that her son's last known cell phone signal was at the Gaza border. And after more than a week in captivity, Hamas terrorists released a video on Monday of a French-Israeli hostage identified as Mia Shem. On Tuesday, her mother spoke out. Yesterday, I saw my baby on television. I saw she's alive. I can see that she's saying what they tell her to say, but I can see that she's stable. I didn't know she's dead or alive until yesterday. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. And this woman has not received any information about her two children who were taken as hostages. Uh, they were taken in and um, the door was broken and I could hear my youngest who was on the phone with me with his phone saying, don't take me, I'm too young. And that was the last I've heard of him. Uh, since Saturday, 7th, October 7th, I heard nothing. I know nothing of their whereabouts. Israel reports that 199 hostages were taken to Gaza during the terrorist attack. So what are world leaders doing to help free the hostages? The Turkish foreign minister says Turkey has been in talks with the Hamas terrorist group. And Turkey has received requests from various countries about their citizens being released. The French foreign minister is also concerned about Hamas holding the entire Gaza population as hostages. She demanded that all civilians must be able to leave Gaza if they want to. However, Egypt, which is Gaza's only other neighboring country, won't allow Gazans to enter. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
Signs of torture at the hands of Hamas terrorists. Forensic teams in Israel have examined the bodies of victims of last week's Hamas attack on southern communities. And what they discovered was gruesome. And again, a warning to viewers. Some of the following footage and the content of this story are disturbing due to their graphic nature. Forensic teams in Israel have examined victims' bodies from last week's Hamas attack on communities near the Gaza Strip. They found multiple signs of torture, rape and other atrocities. We've seen dismembered bodies with their arms and feet chopped off. People that were beheaded. A child that was beheaded. Burned bodies. I can't even tell if it's a man or a woman, if it's a child or an adult. Burned to ashes. Rape. Women were raped, even the elderly, even very young, were raped. Yossi Landau, a member of the Israeli non-governmental rescue and recovery organization Zaka, told Sky News about 80% of an estimated 280 bodies, including children, showed signs of torture. The atrocities included burning, rapes, mutilations and beheadings. At the National Center for Forensic Medicine in Tel Aviv, Teams have already identified more than 500 people out of the 950 bodies brought to the center. We see people without heads. I cannot say now for sure, but we will continue the examination. You know, I to be, we will continue the examination, and then we'll probably have more answers about the reason why these people are beheaded. Maybe it is a missile or something. I, I cannot say because the bodies are charred. The center's leader said they are struggling to identify more victims because there was a high proportion of charred bodies among those still not identified. Israeli President Isaac Herzog told CNN on Sunday about what he saw when he visited a community after Hamas terrorists attacked it. This was found on the body of one of the terrorists. This is a booklet. Okay, this booklet is instruction guide how to go into a civilian premises into a kibbutz, a city, a moshav, how to break in. And first thing, what do you do when you find the citizens? You torture them. This is the booklet. It says exactly how to torture them, how to abduct them, how to kidnap them. More than 1,400 Israelis have died since the latest fighting erupted. The vast majority of them were civilians killed in Hamas's October 7th assault. And as Israel prepares for a ground offensive against Hamas, President Biden will pay a high-stakes wartime visit to Israel. Joining us now live is Entity's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What is the latest about Biden's trip? Is it being affected in any way by the latest explosion at a hospital in Gaza? So the answer to that question is yes and no. President Biden has departed. The White House now wheels up for Israel. So that in part quelled a lot of the spe speculation over if the, if the hospital incident would affect President Biden's plan to travel to Israel. And Biden on Wednesday is expected to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and of course talk to him more about the ongoing war. However, we just got some breaking news this afternoon. Reuters reported that Jordan is canceling a summit at which President Biden was supposed to meet with Jordan, Egyptian, as well as Palestinian leaders. And now, just moments ago, we got this statement from the White House saying, in part, 
After consulting with the King of Jordan in the light of the days of mourning announced by the President of the Palestinian Authority, and President Biden will postpone his travel to Jordan and the planned meetings with these leaders. And it goes on to respond to the latest hospital incident saying, quote, The President sent his deepest condolences for the innocent lives lost in the hospital explosion in Gaza and wished a speedy recovery to the wounded. So, of course, the White House is now saying that President Biden is the one who's trying to postpone this visit to Jordan. But according to reports, Jordan is the one who first tried to cancel this meeting. And all of this is after the Palestinian leader reportedly pulled out of the meeting, citing the hospital incident. And that's despite Israel insisting that the explosion at the hospital was not caused by Israeli airstrikes, but instead a failed rocket launch by an Islamic jihad group, which is aligned with Hamas. So a lot of changes happening in just the past minutes, if not hours. And of course, we are constantly monitoring any new changes to his trip. And let's not forget that there are security risks associated with Biden's visit to Israel itself. Hamas is still firing rockets targeting Israel, and that forced Secretary of State Antony Blinken, along with Netanyahu, to take shelter in a bunker yesterday during a meeting because air sirens were going off in Tel Aviv. The White House has said that it has deemed it safe enough to both execute and also announce this trip beforehand, which is rare. But we also know that, of course, it's a war zone, so we do need to keep an eye on what's happening over there. Meanwhile, Blinken says that Biden has a very clear message to send while he's there. Watch. He's coming here at a critical moment. President Biden will again make clear, as he's done unequivocally, since Hamas's slaughter of more than 1,400 people, including at least 30 Americans, that Israel has the right and indeed the duty to defend its people from Hamas and other terrorists and to prevent future attacks. And Blinken says that Biden will have four goals when he's in Israel. The first one is to reaffirm U.S. solidarity with Israel, to reaffirm the U.S. support for Israel to defend itself. And the second goal is to learn more about what they need in this war and what strategies they have in this war. And the third goal is to warn surrounding countries to not get involved and try to widen this war. And lastly, the goal is to work with Israel to try to secure the over 200 hostages that Hamas says and now have in his hand. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. To allow refugees from Gaza to come to the U.S. or not, former President Trump is the latest candidate to comment on the issue, making his stance very clear. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more on that and on possible ways for dealing with Hamas supporters already here in the U.S. We aren't bringing in anyone from Gaza, Syria, Somalia, Yemen or Libya or anywhere else that threatens our security. But Former President Trump on Monday night in Iowa, speaking on the Israeli war and its consequences. Trump says if re-elected, he will re-implement and expand the travel ban which was in effect during his presidency and tighten immigration control for possible refugees. Next, we'll implement strong ideological screening of all immigrants to the United States. No longer will we allow dangerous lunatics, haters, bigots and maniacs to get residency in our country. If you empathize with radical Islamic terrorists and extremists, you're disqualified. You're just disqualified if you want to abolish the state of Israel. Trump added that people who support communist or Marxist ideology would also be banned. Meanwhile, Arkansas Senator Tom 
Cotton wants to deal with Hamas supporters already in the U.S. On Tuesday, he demanded Homeland Security deport foreign nationals who showed support of Hamas attacks on Israel. That includes those who are in the U.S. on a student visa. Cotton sent a letter to Homeland Security, writing the appalling explosion of anti-Semitism in the United States over the past few weeks should disturb anyone who shares American values. Adding, no foreign national has a right to advocate for terrorism in the United States. Cotton, who graduated from Harvard, says U.S. immigration law prohibits foreigners from entering the U.S. if they endorse terrorist activity. He says Homeland Security should first deport Harvard students who recently signed a controversial letter. In the letter, students blamed Israel for Hamas terrorist attacks on Israeli civilians. And just a few days ago, presidential candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley disagreed on the issue of refugees from Gaza. DeSantis says they shouldn't be allowed to come. If you look at how they behave, not all of them are Hamas, but they are all anti-Semitic. None of them believe in Israel's right to exist. You have to realize that whether we're talking about Gazans and Palestinians, um, you know, all of them don't, you've got half of them at the time that I was there, didn't want to be under Hamas's rule. They didn't want to have terrorists overseeing them. They knew that they were living a terrible life because of Hamas. Arian Pastar, NTD News. The New York fraud case had a repeat visitor today, former President Trump. NTD's legal correspondent was at the courthouse when he arrived. Former President Trump returns to the New York courtroom for the financial fraud case brought by Attorney General Letitia James. He's watching the state continuing to ask witnesses questions about the valuations of his properties. Trump was expecting to see his former attorney Michael Cohen on the witness stand Tuesday, but Cohen said he couldn't come. He said in a social media post, I'm not bowing out, I'm not nervous to testify, I'm not being paid off, I have a medical issue that I need to attend to. Trump came anyway. Attorney General Letitia James has accused Trump of committing fraud by inflating the value of his assets. Outside the courtroom Tuesday, Trump said this. This is a disgraceful situation. This is an attorney general, Letitia, that went out and uh, campaigned on, I will get Trump. I will get Trump no matter what, I'll get Trump. Cohen is a key witness in the case. He testified before Congress in 2019 that Trump inflated his wealth. It is believed this testimony sparked the investigation into Trump's finances. Instead of Cohen, the state questioned real estate appraiser Douglas Larson. Larson answered questions about appraisals he conducted on Trump properties. He refuted testimony given by Trump's controller, Jeff McConney. Larson said he never spoke to McConney about valuations contained in the financial statements, explaining that he didn't have any specific expertise in calculating values. And besides, his appraisals were conducted on behalf of lenders, not for Trump entities. Larson stayed on the stand for the afternoon session and continued to deny having any involvement in assisting any Trump employee with calculating property values. Trump will return to the courthouse Wednesday and Thursday to continue watching witness testimony. As for Cohen, he's expected to take the stand next Tuesday. Tiffany? Coming up, illegal immigrants released onto city streets in California and border officials say they are overwhelmed. We'll have details on what's happening at the southern border. And is your city driver friendly? We'll find out in a new study that ranks 100 U.S. cities from best to worst for what it's like on the roads. That's coming up.
Welcome back at California's border with Mexico. Hundreds of illegal immigrants are being released onto city streets. The influx is overwhelming U.S. authorities. U.S. Customs and Border Protection has released thousands of illegal immigrants on streets in the San Diego area the past month. This includes about 1,000 in the beach town of Oceanside. The agency says they are overwhelmed by record numbers of people from around the world trying to enter the country at the southern border. Now, humanitarian organizations and volunteers are welcoming the people and helping them reach their destinations in other states. They are providing basic necessities like hot meals, guidance, and in some cases, temporary housing. Everybody's starving when they come out of Border Patrol custody, so we have that to meet that basic need. Um, we have a tent that's just for families that have been separated. Immigrant Defenders Law Center executive and founder Lindsay Toxalowski has been on the ground in San Ysidro and has seen the spike firsthand. We've had 14,000 people come through here since September 13th. Um, and in those cases, we have, you know, many cases where part of the family gets processed and dropped off in Riverside County, or people are in Texas, um, or people are still in custody while their family members have been released. Most of the street releases take place in San Ysidro, a district in San Diego that borders the Mexican city of Tijuana. Initially, at the first uh, about eight days of this issue, um, we had them dropping people at the border at San Ysidro and also here, um, and also in North County, San Diego, and Far East County, San Diego. So um, there were four drop-off locations. For the ones that were down here close to the border, we have consolidated them here because we don't have the staffing to be able to respond to two places at once. In a recent meeting, Toxalowski said the San Diego Board of Supervisors has authorized $3 million to support the relief. Their organization estimates an average of more than 550 people a day are released on the streets. And now let's take a look at a new study ranking 100 U.S. cities from best to worst on driver friendliness. Did your city make it to the top? NTD's Jason Blair brings us the full report. From traffic to parking and gas costs, a new study uses 30 metrics to determine which U.S. cities are the most friendly to car owners. I'm here in San Francisco, which did make the list, but did it end up at the top or the bottom? Let's take a look. The top performing cities include Corpus Christi, Texas, Raleigh, North Carolina, Boise, Idaho, Plano, Texas, and Scottsdale, Arizona. And the worst include Los Angeles, California, Washington, D.C., Detroit, Michigan, San Francisco, California, and Oakland, California. Corpus Christi particularly performed well, boasting low gas prices and parking costs, minimal traffic congestion, and a low accident rate. Oakland made the bottom mainly due to high maintenance costs, a high car theft rate, and high gas and parking costs. The study was done by WalletHub and the criteria was in four categories, which are cost of ownership and maintenance, traffic and infrastructure, safety, and access to vehicles and maintenance. As far as states, Texas hosts seven of the top 20 ranked cities, the most of any state. California hosts eight of the bottom ranked cities, also the most of any state. Reporting in San Francisco, California, Jason Blair, NTD News. Coming up, what was the ideology behind the brutal terrorist attack on Israeli civilians? We look at what shapes Hamas and how it came to power. 
And is it cancel culture when Hamas supporters face backlash here in the U.S.? An editor from Newsweek tells us this is not a matter of free speech when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Congressman Jim Jordan failed to secure House speakership in the first round of voting. 20 Republicans voted against him. He needs 17 more votes to win. The next vote is for tomorrow morning. A rocket hit a hospital in Gaza, reportedly killing hundreds of people. Israel said it originated from terrorists within Gaza. President Biden is scheduled to visit Israel to show support for the nation. Former President Trump returned to a New York courtroom for the financial fraud case brought by Attorney General Letitia James. Trump was expecting to see his former attorney Michael Cohen on the witness stand, but Cohen postponed his appearance due to a health condition. Hamas massacred innocent Israeli civilians. What drove them to do this? How did the group come to power in Gaza? Entity's fake order looks into it. Hamas was founded in 1987, created mainly to oppose the state of Israel. The word Hamas is an acronym in Arabic, meaning Islamic Resistance Movement. In 1988, Hamas issued its charter, which says that Israel will exist until Islam will obliterate it. They argue that the Jews have betrayed their divine mission that was assigned to them by Allah, God. And therefore, Allah, according to the Islamic theologists, Allah punished the Jews by dispersing the Jews across the world and by making a, an oath that Jews will never have their own nation. Avi Melamed is a former senior Israeli official and the author of Inside the Middle East. He says Hamas has been influenced by Islamic theologians who say Israel shouldn't exist, even though this is somewhat of a paradox. The Quran actually formally acknowledges that the people of Israel meaning the Jews, they have a direct relation to this piece of land. And obviously this, is, this, presents, this presents Muslim theologists uh, who obviously are anti-Jewish and anti-Israel, this presents a significant challenge. Melamed says theologians have flip-flopped considerably to get by this fact. Hamas gained political popularity while its main rival Fatah lost popularity. Hamas has an extreme view of Islam, that the whole world should practice Islam, that all non-believers are inferior, and that the state of Israel should be violently destroyed. Fatah says the practice of Islam should be a personal choice and opposes the use of violence against Israel. Hamas gained popularity by providing social services such as schools, hospitals, and charities, as well as by violently attacking Israel, which pleased the more extreme Palestinians. And Fatah lost popularity because of incompetence and corruption. This led to Hamas's landslide victory in the 2006 Palestinian elections. Gazan civilians gave the terrorist organization official governing power over the Gaza Strip. In 2007, Hamas proceeded to kick Fatah out of the Gaza Strip entirely. Now in official control, the terrorist group continued growing, later resulting in the October 7th attack on innocent Israelis, which ignited the Israel-Hamas war. Faye Quarter, NTD News. 
Despite the recent terror attack on Israeli civilians, some individuals and groups here in the U.S. are openly supporting Hamas and facing considerable backlash as a result. Is this another example of cancel culture? Joining us now is an editor from Newsweek who calls Hamas supporters catastrophically immoral. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. President Biden is traveling to Israel tonight. This is in a show of support for the country. What is your view on this impending trip? Well, if it is actually a robust demonstration of unequivocal support, then it's a good thing. What I fear is that that is not the case and that he is using that as a fig leaf and that he is either back-channeling or potentially whispering in the ears of Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli military and security establishment that they perhaps do not want to actually see a land invasion, a ground invasion of Gaza. Perhaps they are just trying to kind of reach a ceasefire or an end to hostilities where both sides are to blame. All the usual kind of liberal crap, frankly, that we typically hear from the AOCs and Ilhan Omars of the world. Anyone paying attention to Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken's Twitter feed over the past three to four days, I think it started to see a little bit of a shift in tone. At the beginning of this conflict, initially, Biden rhetorically was unambiguously on the correct side. He spoke with real kind of moral clarity when it came to this. Even, you know, Karine Jean-Pierre, his very left-wing press secretary, initially swatted down uh, Tlaib and Omar and all of those folks for equivocating on this. But I, I, I'm, if I'm reading the tea leaves here correctly, which admittedly I might not be doing, I really, really fear that what is happening right now is that the United States is putting tremendous, tremendous pressure on Israel to really kind of quiet this operation, ultimately bring it to a standstill, which would be a total catastrophe. That would be an absolutely catastrophic outcome if that is the case. So I am praying that that I am wrong on that. I, I fear that I am not. And I think that the fact that the IDF has not actually launched this ground operation into Gaza is but one of many indications that I'm not wrong and that the United States is currently applying tremendous pressure on the Israelis to try to really calm this thing down. So again, if he's going there to just say, I stand with Israel no matter what, that's great. But if he's going there to deliver a slightly different message, then really not so great. I want to zoom in on what we're seeing on the home front. We've seen professors and student groups come out in support of Hamas, and now those groups are facing backlash. Now we have presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, who's calling this cancel culture and supporting free speech. Others are saying they've gone too far. What's your view on what is too far? Yeah, I think that I think that Vivek Ramaswamy is an absolute moron for saying this. Um, it is impossible to hold this stance unless you are some sort of starry-eyed sophomore, college-age libertarian, uh, naive, naive, hopeful optimist. I mean, this is not cancel culture. This is not "quote unquote" free speech. We are not de- having a polite civil discussion here about capital gains tax rates. We are not debating whether the gestational limit for Aborting an unborn child in the womb should be 12, 15, or 18 weeks. We were literally talking about the fact that people here openly sided with a US-EU recognized terrorist organization and came out in full-scale support of the wanton and indiscriminate slaughter of Jews, of the worst slaughter of Jews, the worst pogrom that our people have experienced since Nazi Germany and the days of Hitler. It is not cancel culture for people to say that these folks should not be employed in reputable society. On the contrary, this is just the market at work. They are putting out their ideas and the market is responding as it would. So for Bill Ackman, the the hedge funder, for Ken Griffin, 
the hedge funder to get out there and say, we are not going to hire people there. Well, what do you expect? You're going to affix your name to a letter. You are assigning your ideas to the words on that page. There, it, it, There is necessarily going to be a reaction to that. For example, if I were to say in your show now, I'm not going to, but if I were to say hypothetically that I want to see the world's nearly 2 billion Muslims wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow, I would be fired from my employer, and rightfully so. I'm not going to say that because it's, it's, it's obviously a terrible and abhorrent thing to say. The point is that you have repercussion. You have consequences. And this notion that any Thing and everything that you say can somehow be whitewashed because it's quote unquote free speech. What he's trying to do, Vivek and the other apologists for this, they're trying to prevent us from reaching moral judgments as to the actual underlying moral arguments being addressed here. And the arguments addressed by these pro-jihadist, pro-Hamas students at Harvard are anything other than moral. They are grossly and catastrophically immoral. And no one, no one in polite society should want anything to do whatsoever with these apologists for a United States-recognized terrorist organization, which is the Islamic fundamentalist death cult that is Hamas. And zooming in on the repercussions that you brought up in the case of these 31 Harvard groups after a growing backlash, especially from the commercial and CEO side, some groups did retract their statements. What's your understanding of their motivation for doing so? I mean, they're cowards. They're cowards who thought they could get away with this, and, and then they saw, no, wait, actually, this is going to have a consequence. Like my my words, what I fix my name to, is actually going to lead to negative career outcomes. So it's grossly cynical. I mean, it's very cowardly and it's cynical. They're seeing their potential career opportunities, their potential bank earnings accounts, their, their potential kind of stock market returns. They're seeing the real financial potential consequences of the absolute and appalling idiocy and moral disgrace to which they have affixed their name. And now they're just backpedaling, trying to escape any responsibility for it. So I don't think anyone should believe these people for a split second there. I mean, you put your names to a piece of paper. As a general rule, as a general rule, when you put your name to something, you stand behind it. You know, if they want to kind of closely read that statement multiple times to make sure that they agree with every word, maybe if they disagreed with a line or two there, they shouldn't have signed it. So I don't believe them for a second that they've had a change of heart there. I find that completely ludicrous and impossible to believe. I think that even those who are now cowardly trying to, to backpedal from that probably should still face some sort of consequences as well. So that's the case for inside the country. Now, Senator Cotton is urging the Department of Homeland Security to deport foreign nationals who come in with statements supporting Hamas. Do you agree with his stance there? I would emphatically agree with Senator Cotton's stance. I saw Governor DeSantis here in Florida, where I live, say the same thing. This is obviously correct. Look, if you are here on a visa, if you are not a United States citizen, then you are ultimately here at our goodwill. We are extending you the privilege of being in the greatest country on the world on some sort of visa. That visa can be rescinded at any given time. And support, open support, again, for a United States-recognized terrorist organization that has as its ultimate goal not merely the annihilation of Israel, not merely the the killing, the murder of every Jew across the world, but ultimately, of course, the annihilation of America itself and ultimately really what, what these Islamic militants, these, jih these jihadist terrorist scums, often what, what they refer to as quote-unquote infidels. They're ultimately trying to kill every quote-unquote infidel in the Western world, be they Jew, Christian, or... Or, or pagan, frankly, anyone who is not of their radical Islamic Islamist bent. So Senator Khan is completely correct here. And it's worth noting that last week we saw in both France and in Berlin, Germany, prosecutors' offices have announced that they are actually going to prosecute people who chant that abhorrent slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. 
Certainly, I think in the United States, if we can't prosecute them because of some of the First Amendment or some sort of other legal prohibition pro precluding that, if we can't prosecute them, we should at least deport them if they're not U.S. citizens. And given the sentiments we're seeing from student groups inside the country and with President Biden's trip to Israel, what is the message the U.S. should be sending right now? The message is very straightforward. We are with you. You do what you have to do. The IDF, we support what the IDF is going to have to do in Gaza if this thing gets to become a two-front war with Hezbollah in the north, God forbid, a three-front three war as well with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. The United States should say, we are with you, and we will be there for you if, God forbid, it starts to reach some sort of broader conflagration. Obviously, we, we are all hopeful that it, that it does not do that. The point here is that you cannot call for a premature end to hostilities. You cannot call for a premature ceasefire because all that is, all that is, is letting Hamas off the hook with absolute impunity. It is, a, it is emboldening the global jihad. It is emboldening those who are in our cities, in our homes, in Western towns, all across this country, all across Europe. It is emboldening them to strike again. So letting the IDF or pre preventing the IDF from doing what the IDF has to do right now is not merely endangering Israelis. It obviously does endanger Israelis. It ultimately endangers all of us because it emboldens these people who have already been imported to our shores, who are already embedded within our communities, the people marching in Dearborn, Michigan, flying that horrific flag, the Palestinian flag. It emboldens all of them. So you have to let Israel do what it has to do there. You cannot apply any kind of pressure for any kind of premature ceasefire. That is the very simple and straightforward message. No one is calling for American boots on the ground or anything like that. So keep the deterrent in place. There are multiple aircraft carrier groups in the region. As a pure deterrence factor, that is totally fine. And that really is it. It's that simple, that we stand with Israel, What they let them do what they have to do. Just basically shut up, get away, and provide diplomatic cover if need be if the UN and other morally benighted international institutions. But other than that, just get away and do not put pressure on Israel. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for your time. Coming up, five new sports are now added to the 2028 Olympics. Find out what sports are making their debut in the global arena. And in college sports, athletes are now getting paid. But does this require government regulations? Hear what was said on Capitol Hill when we come back. Welcome back. The Olympics are embracing a sporting revolution, welcoming five exciting new events to the world stage. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the story. We're here at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, where the 2020 Olympics will be held. Five sports have been added to the Olympic program after being approved by the International Olympic Committee's executive board. Flag football, cricket, baseball, softball, lacrosse, and squash have received approval for inclusion in the 2028 Summer Olympics Monday. The list of sports successfully passed its last stage of approval during a meeting in Mumbai, India, involving the entire Olympic body's membership. Squash and flag football will make their Olympic debut, while cricket and lacrosse make a return after earlier appearances. Baseball and softball have been in and out of recent Olympics. However, none of these sports are guaranteed a permanent spot in the Olympics beyond 2028. Other additions like skateboarding, surfing, and sport climbing have secured 
permanent places on the summer program. In addition to the five new sports, two others not originally on the IOC's agenda, weightlifting and modern pentathlon, will also be a part of the 2028 Olympic lineup. The proposal had been put forward by Los Angeles officials just one week prior and received a recommendation from the IOC executive board on the preceding Friday. The Los Angeles Olympics will be held Friday, July 14th, 2028 through Sunday, July 30th, 2028. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. And in more sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on possible federal regulation in college sports. That's right, Tiff. Will name image likeness be regulated by the federal government? Possibly so. The subject was at the forefront of a Senate hearing today. And while most of the witnesses involved expressed a need for government regulation, one senator wanted to know why college athletes suddenly getting paid is a problem. I mean, is that, is that what is going on here? The fact that the money is being redistributed and that's going to cause the world to spin off its axis because the kids are getting a share of the dough? Now, the topic of kids getting a share of the dough went as far as what challenges schools would have if student-athletes in revenue sports, that's football and basketball, unionized and became employees instead. If you, if you made people employees, uh, Governor Baker, what would happen to Division II schools? I think it's pretty clear that Division II and Division III schools would get out of the interscholastic collegiate sports business and Can probably just turn listen most of to their what stuff into club sports. Ultimately, most everyone agreed that paying athletes as employees would likely wipe out the availability of Olympic sports like swimming, gymnastics, tennis, golf, and even baseball while making Title IX requirements even more difficult. The hearing ended without any promises of federal regulation. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, it's Game 2 of the NLCS between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Now, the Phillies won Game 1 last night behind a trio of home runs. Tonight, they start Aaron Nola on the mound opposite Arizona's Merrill Kelly. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.